0: Kyoto, Koto, no good to be back with you again. Oh my goodness, uh, I am very excited about today's podcast. Doctor Noam Zohar is from Bar Ilan University in Israel. Now, um, you probably know I'm a bit of a political tragic, and when I hear Israel, I think conflict, and I think you know Gaza, and I think West Bank and Palestine and rockets, and um, which is all completely unfair and seen through a very narrow, narrow, narrow view of the world, which is, I guess, the American and cable news networks view, Um, sadly for me. But uh, Dr. Zohar is delivering some lectures at Otago University over the next few days. Uh, And he caught our eye because one of them is entitled The Jewish Approach to Abortion. And I just thought, gosh, this is going to be fascinating. He is a bioethicist. He also um, has a, a lot, obviously, as an academic in the ethics area to share and talk about ethics in general. And he was one of those guys that both Jason and I saw his write-up and thought, we've got to get this guy in. We don't really know where the conversations go, but let's just get him in and have a chat. And this is that chat, Dr. Noam J. Zohar on the Department of Conversation.
1: It's boys, and
0: now girls, so. so what they're using it for girls. So they're using it for girls. So your first name is pronounced Noam, and welcome, we're live now. Right. Noam, your surname is uh, Zohar. Correct. Noam Zohar, because we, we we're just saying, people who are just joining us, welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, as in, people refer to Noam Chomsky, but you're saying it's actually Noam Chomsky. I think so. And it's common now. What, what is the origins of the word? What does the name mean? Well,
1: actually, it's a, it's the word appears in the Bible, but mm-hmm. not as a name, uh, and it means... Uh, Pleasant? No. Pleasantness, All right? Yeah.
0: So in the Bible, is it like a place of being, a place of pleasantness?
1: Yes, or something like that.
0: Nice. Patrick means noble man. I knew that from when I was right. a child. Okay. Noam Zohar, Professor Dr. Noam Zohar in Otago to deliver a lecture. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Very, very glad to have you here. Very excited about today for lots of reasons. Um, Jace, let's bring up the page that's got the actual lecture on it. Uh, You've been in Dunedin for several days. Right. But next week you are delivering a public lecture uh, on uh, Wednesday at lunchtime, and it's called Tracing the Divine Image, Jewish Approaches to Abortion. Correct. That's a pretty massive uh, sort of a concept, and I'm sure for a lot of people there are some buzzwords in there, thinking about the word abortion in particular, but also perhaps Jewish, that make them go, crumbs, what's that all about? Which is kind of what I did, which is why we connected.
1: All right, fair enough. I just should let you know that I'm also giving another lecture Monday. Okay. At the Bioethics Centre right here. Yeah,
0: so you are a bioethicist. Right. And you uh, have a specialist area in things like rabbinic thought. Right. um, Morality of war. And you just seem to be, for me at least, one of the most fascinating CVs I've seen for a long time. And I just could do nothing other than try and connect with you to get you in for a conversation.
1: Well, that's nice nice of you to say that.
0: Yeah. Um, So the thing I'm interested about the uh, Jewish approach to abortion, specifically your lecture, now we're not here to talk to you about your lecture, as you know, here in the Department of Conversation, we just kind of go where the conversation goes. Right. But the thing I was trying to figure out is being Jewish is one of those things, I think probably the only only thing in the world where you can either be a, a citizen of Israel and be Jewish or you can follow a religion and be Jewish. When it says Jewish approaches to abortion, are you talking about sort of the civil law in Israel or are you talking about the uh, the Jewish religious approach to abortion?
1: That's a good question. This, what, this talk is actually uh, about the Jewish religious approach. Okay. It is, it's Judaic approaches to religion. And actually in Israel, uh, not everybody is Jewish. We have about 20% minority of Arabs, mostly Muslims. Right. So Israeli would not necessarily mean Jewish. And okay. even for the Jewish population of Israel, as you indicated, a lot of them are secular, so they're not all affiliated with the Jewish religion. So
0: you still need to be a part of the the religious Jewish line to be Jewish in Israel, even if you don't have a religious Jewish belief. So if I was to move to Israel and become a nationalized Israeli, like, like to um, renounce my citizenship and become a citizen of Israel, I'd be Israeli, nationalized, not Jewish. Correct. Right. So so if you are non-religious, but you're living in Israel, to be Jewish, you would still need to have the Judaism in your family line
1: to use that title. Either in your family name line, or you have converted, or can convert course. once you're in Israel.
0: Yeah. So there are people here, and it's a very small uh, community in New Zealand, who are... Jewish, but they might have been born in Milton (laughs) and live in Dunedin and have never been to Israel, perhaps, but they can still be Jewish. Of course. So, this is the religious approach to the religious Jewish approach to abortion. It's interesting because I've been doing a little bit of reading this week about the Jewish approach to abortion, and I'm suspicious that perhaps it's the secular civil approach within Israel about the fetus not being defined as a human and the mother's life being the only thing that matters. Can you ex- can you tell us now about what you're going to talk about and maybe how that differs or where it aligns with the, the civil laws within Israel for abortion?
1: Well, I'll just say that the civil law in Israel regarding abortion is a bit curious because in theory or on paper, it's restrictive. That is, abortion is a criminal offence. Okay. Uh, not by the woman, but by the doctor performing the abortion, unless permission has been given <clears throat> by a special committee. And every hospital, uh, more or less, has such a committee, uh, which a woman can approach and ask for permission. And then once that permission is given, the abortion is legal.
0: Okay. And that would be something like the mother's life in threat? Or well, was-
1: actually, the grounds for... Uh, upon which the committee can grant the permission, are uh, much uh, broader than just the woman's life being threatened. Okay. And the curious fact is that even though on paper this seems restrictive and is de- very different from the current state of law, let's say in the United States, where there's, a, meanwhile still, a constitutional right in terms of women's woman's autonomy and control over her own body, mm-hmm. in terms of a liberty right uh, to determine that she wants an abortion, at least in the first trimester. And we don't have that in Israel, as I just indicated. But in fact, we have more or less abortion on demand because it's virtually unheard of for a woman seeking such permission not to actually get right. it.
0: So it's a legal loophole they have to jump through to make it a legal procedure.
1: A legal hoop. You wouldn't say a loophole because it's, right. it's it, a loophole is something which the legislator hasn't thought about. Okay. Here it's actually the mainstream procedure. She just goes to the committee and she gives whatever reason she gives. And, so and actually, if she's refused, she can go to another committee at another hospital. And right.
0: So therefore, um, it would seem that what you're saying is even if it's illegal in under Israeli law, really all the abortions that get carried out would be legal because they get permission.
1: Right. So it's conditionally illegal. It's yeah. illegal unless you get permission, but it's actually quite easy to get the permission.
0: That so. was actually very similar to the law in New Zealand until very, very recently. It was it, it was the same sort of a law. And I think, if I'm wrong, maybe, Jason, could Google this. It was this current Labor government that finally didn't make it illegal to have an abortion. You had to have a doctor's approval. but But the same thing. Basically, it was on demand, and it's a technical hurdle they used to go over but everyone got over it so to speak
1: right so now once in a while some people on the left or feminist or or, or politicians or organizations say let's change that let's recognize the woman's right to have that Hmm. you know officially so it doesn't have to be this kind of gap between the official formal position and the actual practice and then sometimes, maybe even more rarely, people on the right or the religious right let's say, well, let's make it more restrictive. Mm. And then everybody says, let's not rock the boat. You know, we're more or less living with the situation as it is, and nobody seems too unhappy about it. So things just go on as they are. And this brings me to the second part of your question. Sure. Because the fact that we don't have a very strong uh, religious right or any kind of... Uh, um, uh, pro-life movement, uh, uh, agitating very strongly towards let's let's make abortion uh, much more difficult to to uh, to achieve. You're saying in Israel
0: there's not a strong. We pro- don't have that. Okay.
1: We don't. There is some once once in a while you hear such a voice yep. or you see a, people somebody pays for uh, posters on buses say yep. abortion is murder or something you know propaganda of that kind, but. It's a very weak movement, and that may have to do with the fact that the Jewish religious tradition, in the whole, uh, which includes many voices, Mm -hmm. and that's why the title of my talk says Approaches, not a single approach. Yeah, yeah, got it. um, uh, Nevertheless, can be characterized as distinctly different from, let us say, the Catholic. The Roman Catholic position. So
0: the Roman Catholic position would basically be no abortions ever for any reason, no matter what.
1: Because they consider the fetus to be a human being like you yeah. and me from day
0: one. Like 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 life. Well, what human at conception is that what They say right. life at conception.
1: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And the Jewish religious tradition uh, doesn't work. Doesn't lean in that direction.
0: Okay. So to so explain, yeah, I'm fascinated. Right. How does the how does the Jewish religion? How do you lean?
1: Well, I'll be talking about some of that in my lecture in yep. some detail, but...
0: It's, yeah, brief it, overview. We don't want you to but, get up all your But all your right. stuff now. But, <laughs>
1: but the, the classical, uh, well, uh, the, as you may know, the Jewish religion, the religious tradition mm-hmm. uh, is based on the Bible or what we call the Hebrew Bible, the... Uh, uh, is
0: that is that all of the Old Testament or just the first five books?
1: Well, no, well, actually it's all of the Old Testament. Okay. Th- that is, Christians call it the Old Testament. Of yeah, yeah, course, yeah. they have a New Testament. Yes. And Jews call it the Hebrew Bible yeah. or Tanakh, which is an acronym for the five books of Moses right. and the prophets and the so-called writings like Psalms okay. and Proverbs and the like. So that's the 24 books of the Hebrew Bible. But Jewish religious tradition rests... Uh, No less significantly on what we call the oral Torah, or the oral teaching, Mm -hmm. which uh, is perhaps the most famous compendium of that is the Talmud, which was compiled about 1,500 years ago. Mm -hmm. But the core document of the Talmud is the Mishnah, which was compiled almost 2,000 years ago, around the year 200. And there's a clear statement in the Mishnah, that if a woman is having difficulty in childbirth, and her life is at risk then the fetus should be killed in order to save her life because her life takes precedence
0: can i ask this question um i I could be wrong and look i'm not well versed in this area of study but i've heard people say that there is something in the old testament about drinking drinking a potion to abort a baby or drinking a drinking a poison for the specific purpose of aborting the baby is that what we're talking about, or is that? Am I just talking through a hole in my head?
1: I don't remember such a thing. Okay, Certainly right. not in the Old Testament. The Talmud does talk about a woman taking a potion as a contraceptive measure. Okay, all right. And uh, it's not entirely clear whether that's permanent—something that will render her uh, incapable of further fertility—or right. it's something temporary. It seems more to be a permanent measure, and is. Uh, and not entirely prohibited, but that's another matter. Okay, yep, yep. So uh, what we're talking about here is actually uh, uh, physically, you know, mo- uh, m- the midwife moving into the womb and uh, cutting the fetus to, to set it loose and to avoid uh, the death probably of both. It's the kind of birth where the, it's stuck.
0: So um, would that imply, therefore, that would be more during an
1: actual childbirth or any time in the gestation period? Well, that clause is during childbirth. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's even you have a full-term fetus. And then the next clause says once it has emerged or is almost emerged or mostly emerged and considered born, born, then it's no longer permissible to do that. Right. Because it's a live person and has equal standing with the woman. Literally
0: the second it is out of the
1: mother? Well, there's actually, as you will find in Talmudic discussions, a discussion about what point, whether the head is out or most <laughs> of the most of the fetus. It's yeah. some point in the process, before the birth is complete, yeah. where it's considered born. Okay.
0: And that's a cutoff like point. there's a 50-50 line. When the baby's 52% out, It's that's the debate. Something like that. Right. Right. Wow, and so that so so the approach in that instance is that the woman's life is is, is be all and end all until the baby is born.
1: Right. Okay. So, so prior prior to that, the baby is not considered a person, or the the word used there is the Hebrew word nefesh, which is translated probably as soul or person. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't yet acquire that status until birth. So that's clearly distinct from the let's say, the Catholic position, mm. which we mentioned earlier.
0: And interesting that, obviously, the Catholic faith has come from what the Catholics refer to, I grew up Catholic, as the Old Testament, and has been birthed out of the Jewish religion that it could then be so vastly different in their understanding or their practice in the, same, in the same situation.
1: Well, that's not entirely strange because, after all, what I was quoting now is the Mishnah, which is a rabbinic document, and Christianity certainly did not share the rabbinic tradition. Right. Even though Jesus studied in the same, and Paul as well, mm. uh, studied in that tradition. And Paul says at one point about himself, I'm a Pharisee. Yeah. So they studied in that tradition, but the Christian um, Christianity as a religion uh, distinguished itself from that tradition earlier than the time of the Mishnah.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because that means, therefore earlier than the missionaries as you're saying, but the actual Jewish faith is what the character of Jesus and I guess all of the disciples or certainly all of the, the Jewish, were they all Jewish? I don't know, um, would have followed. And then out of that comes a almost, you'd say, completely different religion based the Christianity side of, of you know, New Testament faith.
2: Right. Hmm. I'm curious just on kind of this is a bit left field from the similar sort of along that sort of like the point at which as you say um, I can't remember remember what the word used but the word that was loosely translated to soul Um, within the Jewish faith because just put in context I have friends um, several friends over the years actually but more recently I've got a friend who had a very late term stillbirth and they had a a Christian funeral for that baby that was named and so forth is that something that with with that sort of, as you're saying, the soul is really only given in a way or um, considered to be within the baby um, at that point of birth. If a baby is stillborn, would it be something within the Jewish faith, you would would you have a a funeral as such within the Jewish faith, do you think? Um, so I, if
0: it's not considered a human until it's birthed, how does how do you deal with the the whatever the definition of the 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 dead being is prior to birth?
1: Right. So the the uh, the uh, Jewish uh, religious teaching actually is that uh, stillborn yep. uh, is not considered a person who has died, and therefore need not uh, uh, you need not conduct a proper funeral or uh, have the full seven days of mourning as you would for a person who has died, mm-hmm. and. Uh, nevertheless, the pain and the the, the tragic loss uh, of the mother or the family uh should be recognized somehow right. so uh there's been there have been efforts over the past recent decades to construct some kind of ceremony for emotional uh dealing with that real pain but it's not, jason is right it's not actually seen as a equal to a dead child.
0: Right. And, uh, it's interesting you would say sort of of recent times because I was thinking about, and of course because I was stereotyping, I was thinking about, let's say, a young mid-20s Jewish couple living in New York or something like that. If they lost their first child, I can't imagine in a much more secular time they would um, not have the same grief, as you're saying, as a you know someone who had lost the baby when it was a day old. So you're saying that there is ways now to, within the faith, within the Jewish perspective, to actually still um, signify that and signify that as a loss. Right. But perhaps, what, 100 years ago, less so?
1: I think so. I think also, but this is just speculation, Mm. that we have to remember the drastic change in in infant mortality rate Mm -hmm. uh, that we've experienced over the past 100, 200 years. So that I think the way we regard a lost, a a pregnancy or a a lost at a late stage as something you don't really expect, the odds for that are happily low, both in New Zealand and in Israel. Yeah. I mean, I can't say it's necessarily the same as in all of the world because in less developed countries... Uh, the statistics are still not as good as we have them.
0: Yeah, but you're right. So in, in the in the year 1800, you know, families typically tried to have six, eight, ten children to see if five of them would survive, whereas now you have two children and you expect them both to survive. Right. So, yeah, so it's a different... Right. Uh, so that, that that unborn child or that just-born child is not expected to die, so maybe we have a different expectation and feeling towards it in the womb because it's like, well, it's going to be here. There's nothing that it could possibly be other than be here and be healthy because that's, as you say, statistically it, uh, what the case is.
2: Interesting. New Zealand's uh, actually considerably higher than, um, than Israel. Israel is 3.6 per thousand births and New Zealand is 5.4. Wow. So um, New Zealand is lagging behind a little bit on those What's the US? The US
0: is 4.3, so halfway in between. Wow. Well, there you go. Um, do you spend much time in New Zealand? Because you seem to have come over for a good 10 days to a couple of weeks. Obviously, some people come and they deliver lectures and they get in and they get out. But are you is this somewhere you've been
1: before and something that you like to do? Well, I've actually not been in New Zealand before, but okay. I am here for several months, uh, mostly in Dunedin, but also I'll be ta- giving a talk up in Wellington later on in, uh, in the fall and uh, this is very nice here in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you
0: come in to, to just be a, a visiting lecturer, a visiting professor?
1: Well, uh, I'm not a visiting professor. I have no appointment here, but I do have an invitation from the university here. And uh, uh, getting to know some people here in the bioethics center yep. and other, other law school, other parts of the university. And uh, as we are supposed to do on a sabbatical, also working on my own writing.
0: right of course. Now explain to me um, exactly what bioethics is if someone said to you what, how if I was looking to study something, what what is bioethics and how does it apply to to today's society or to, to how we have conversations?
1: Bioethics is a new word which actually has been uh, traced to 1970 uh, apparently invented a few months apart by two people okay. And you mean the
0: same word by two people at two different times? Yes. Oh, cool. So it's
1: interesting, and uh, it's actually a uh, a new discipline or a new profession, you might say, uh, and uh, it you can say it's akin to what used to be called medical ethics. Okay. And which has a much longer history, of course. Yep. And medical ethics. Uh, so why why do we need something called bioethics as distinct from the good old medical ethics? Mm. Now, medical ethics, as you might uh, decipher from the term, means the ethics of the medical profession. Right. So traditionally, that was thought of something that doctors produced or formulated and regulated within the profession. So that the medical association, the Israel Medical Association, has an ethics committee. Mm-hmm. Which uh, talks about policy and advises, but can also do a hearing, to uh, if there's a complaint against some physician who has misbehaved
0: and that what that who has been unethical
1: in terms of the ethics of the profession. Right. So, okay. tradition, like the uh, similar to legal ethics. So okay. the you know the bar may have a ethics committee to oversee... So
0: what, what would be a really basic example of a, a doctor being unethical within that system? Like what, would, what would a complaint be?
1: Well, in that traditional system, it could be that the doctor was... Uh, um, <clears throat> well, you can say the doctor was uh, taking bribes to do something okay. illegal, or was... Uh, well, that would be a breach of the law, but it might be the doctor actually was... Uh, um, uh, seeking publicity in mm. uh, commercial ways which is unaccepted in the medical profession
0: acting inappropriately towards say a, a female
1: um,
0: patient is that the kind of area that you're yes that? That it
1: might be that as yeah, well okay. right. now a lot of that it, above a certain level of severity would of course be <laughs> legal uh, sure. criminal yeah. behavior but at if it's below the uh, level of criminal it still might be unethical um, and the great shift is that today uh, well in the i think this might have grown out of the 1960s um civil rights movement and human uh e- movement towards equality and uh, greater liberty so that the traditional stance of medical ethics which was rather paternalistic the doctors knew what was right and would direct the patient as to what they should do yep uh, became problematic and uh, that's when a lot of patients' rights legislation or formulations got underway. And at that point, it also uh, was realized that there are more than MDs in the field. There are many stakeholders. Right. Well, There's nurses and there's psychiatrists and there's uh, administrators and there's social workers and, of course, the patients and their families. So all of these people really have a stake in what's going on. Mm-hmm. And the conversation about what's right and what's wrong what's permissible and what's impermissible uh, and also how to deal with conflicts when it's not really between good and evil Mm -hmm. but between good and good or between evil and lesser evil
0: so conflict between two sides wanting good right so that's more difficult to resolve because there's sort of Maybe maybe I'm wrong here, but in the instance of two people wanting good, maybe there's not such a clear victim and not such a clear perpetrator.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So it's not really a question of policing the ethics of the medical profession as if there's evil people out there and we need to keep them in line. I mean, there is some of that, but bioethics is not mainly about that.
0: And if people were evil, you would think within that context that would probably go
1: into the realms of criminal. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. So it's it's bioethics is really not about that. It's about dilemmas where you can easily see both sides of the issue. I mean, right. like what we were talking about before, you know. Some people just say abortions are murder, and it's very clear-cut to them. Yeah. And other people may say it's just a woman's choice, and any interference and any questioning of her choice is just patriarchal gender hierarchy bossing it over her. But a lot of people can see both sides of the issue, and free, commonly I'd say a woman, a woman... Wondering whether she should have an abortion, uh, will herself be conflicted?
0: Yeah. my We were talking about you last night, um, and I've got three daughters, 14, 12, and 9. And um, I, I read out the title. I was talking to one of my my boarders, and... Um, and I read out the title of your lecture and my 12-year-old said to me, so dad, what do you think about abortion? And I'm, oh shit, this is the big question for the dinner table to a 12-year-old. But the approach I took was basically what you said. It's an incredibly difficult conversation. It's not as black and white as people always, not always, but most people portray all the time. There's always going to an element of you know, very difficult decision-making on the side of anybody making it. And it's, it's, it's very difficult to kind of wrap up in a little nutshell to say this is what it is and this is what it isn't. And then I looked at her and she seemed satisfied with that answer, so I thought we'll move on now.
1: <laughs> well, right, I actually recall, I, I, unfortunately, I'm weak on remembering names, but I remember her face, a woman who was a Catholic, a leader of Catholics for Pro Choice, for choice in Washington, D.C.,
0: Okay, so for choice,
1: Catholics for choice, okay. and she said she said to me a phrase that stuck in my memory. She said, "People don't realize that you can be pro-life and pro-choice." Yeah, which meant morally, or as a Catholic, she was pro-life, but politically, she was pro-choice because she thought, I mean, that was these are my values as a Catholic woman, but I can realize that. In in reality, people have other views or they have some overwhelming concern which conflicts with that, and it's not for me or for the state to block them. Well, well,
0: equally, the other side of that coin is people can be neither. I mean, I've grown up in in the church and I've worked with various religious organizations through my career, and some people are a bit shocked that I'm not pro-life. But what I typically say is I'm neither pro-life nor am I pro-choice because I feel in this day and age both of those movements have become political, Both of those movements have become um, almost at loggerheads with one another, another. and what I try and do is I try and be pro-person. And sometimes when you're pro-person, you're siding alongside and you're you're sitting in the same camp as the pro-life people, and sometimes when you're pro-person, you're alongside the people in the the pro-choice campaign, and sometimes you're not alongside anybody and you're sitting by yourself in the middle. So I, I, I think those two movements um, both of which I think probably have validity and probably were started for the right reasons, have, I don't want to say been hijacked, because they've been going for a very long time, but have been very much turned into a political campaign, a bit like you see in America, Democrat versus Republican, and there's just the never the twain
1: shall meet. And I think that's pointless. Right. And so I should say uh, two things. First of all, regarding that issue, a lot of my a lot of my writing is on Jewish bioethics. Mm-hmm. And I also write in philosophical bioethics, or what you would call secular bioethics or philosophical bioethics, but um, my colleagues and friends who do Jewish bioethics in the United States are often frustrated because (laughs) the way things are portrayed in the public arena there, the the religious stance is prohibitive vis-a-vis abortion. Mm. And they say, well, if you're going to let religious voices into the public arena and have evangelical Christians or Catholics make, you know, working politically to prohibit abortion? Uh, what about the Jewish religion, Yeah, which actually does uh, does not share that view and has a different value orientation, and that voice should also be heard in that melee?
0: Well, that's one of the biggest hypocrisies, and I can see that part of your um, interest of areas are also political philosophy. It would be fascinated to get your take. One of the biggest hypocrisies within that Americans, especially the right You know, part of politics is that whole pro-life movement. To me, it seems to be more like a pro-life birth movement than a pro-life movement, because often those people on the right then don't want to support. Plans and processes after that child's born to keep supporting it. They want the baby to come out and they want the baby to be alive. But then they basically say, "Fuck you, little child. We're not now going to care about if your mother's a solo parent looking after her." And there seems to be a hypocrisy there. That all that matters is getting that thing born, and then you can look after yourself after that. I don't care anything else. I don't. I don't understand that.
1: Well, yes, there's also probably a gender uh, or uh, component in there in terms of policing women Mm. Uh, but i should come back to your uh question about bioethics yeah yeah. right because i was using the abortion issue which we were discussing before to illustrate the nature of bioethics which is not about uh, policing evil evildoers uh, within the medical profession it's a shared enterprise
0: about creating conversation about creating conversation, exactly. about about putting these things on the table and discussing them from all perspectives.
1: Right, and having uh, actually in many hospitals in the U.S., they have a ethics consultation service, mm-hmm. which means anybody can call for an ethics cons- consultation. It could be a, a senior doctor. It could be a, a, a doctor in training or a nurse or a social worker or a patient or somebody from the patient's family, someone who feels there's an unresolved ethical issue. Something is going on which is problematic, or there's disagreement, and people are not sure what's the right thing to do, or there's no agreement about what's the right thing to do, Mm. even though each individual may be relatively sure, but they don't agree. Mm. So someone can say, let's call in the bioethicist. And the bioethicist's role is, first of all, to facilitate a conversation, and uh, uh, one hopes also to introduce some insights uh, from the... Uh, experience and training in bioethics uh, to illuminate what's at stake and and help people get clearer about what can or should be done. So
0: it sounds like maybe almost, um, not a mediator, but I think about, you know, the the team leader who's facilitating the conversation and bringing in, I I think about counselling and I've used this example before. I love, I think counselling is a very healthy thing for people to go through and I always think about it, uh, because I'm a New Zealander, about a rugby field. And I think about the rugby field as my life, right? And all the players on the rugby field are a part of my life. Now, if I'm in the front row of the rugby or I'm in the scrum or the ruck, I don't know what's happening with the people behind me, my backs, because, um, because I'm involved in this melee on the ground. But someone sitting in the stand watching the game can actually see my life, the field, better than I can at times. And I think about counselling as like someone sitting in a stand who's able to see if the backs are open or even if I'm caught up in that mall on the ground I'm not sure if you understand the concept of rugby but in a big ball on the ground with lots of other players and can't see
1: I've the seen whole that field. I, okay I, I cannot say that I' comprehend okay. the rules but you're, I see what they're doing
0: We'll have to take you to a game down here it'll be great fun and I wonder if what you're saying it feels like it's a little bit the same the the bioethicist can come in as the person sitting in the sand to kind of say well here's the here's the lay of the land right now and these are the options.
1: Well, that's actually part of it. And there has been a, a sub-movement within bioethics. There are many voices which has emphasized mediation. So you mm-hmm. can find books on mediation in bioethics or bioethics as mediation. And then I have a colleague in Amsterdam who's been working on uh, they don't on a similar thing where they call it uh, an ethical conversation, a dialogue, mm. but uh, it's uh, somewhat in the Habermas uh, tradition. But... It's not only that. That's part of it is this conversation yeah. and consultation, but another part is actually uh, contributing philosophical insights. Right. So that sometimes a conversation can be very complicated because something needs to be sorted out, some concept or some point, and uh, someone who's trained in uh, bioethics, or from my perspective, philosophical bioethics, mm-hmm. is sometimes able to bring some clarity by a disti- introducing a distinction or by comparing this case with something that I know happened last year in some other place, and so, i so read does, up about
0: that. So does that mean you have the ability to come in at times also and go, this is not ethical? In other words, you're not just kind of helping the conversation but drawing a line in the sand? Well, no,
1: uh, that, that might happen... Rarely. Yeah. Uh, Usually, you don't want, even if you think that, Mm -hmm. you don't want to say that outright to someone with whom you're disagreeing. Right. uh, Because that's not the best way to help them see that. But often, you should have the ability to say, if the various people who are well-meaning and care for the patient have disagreement, then probably each of them has some legitimacy in their view most times. But sometimes they'll be mis... The line I was talking about was not like a line in the sand beyond this hieroglyphical, but it's sometimes distinguishing between two kinds of things and saying to a person, you know, if things were a little different, Mm -hmm. then I I would share your view, but please notice that in this case, it's not quite that. And then sometimes people can say, oh, I see your point.
0: So as an academic, how much of your time is spent helping... Helping groups with that kind of situation versus actually working in academia and, and being a professor and lecturing and helping others get to that point?
1: Well, actually, I mentioned the US before because mm. unfortunately in Israel we hardly have this practice of clinical bioethics. So I do that just on a sporadic basis. You know, if uh, someone in the hospital uh, who knows me, feels they need this kind of input and they'll call me in for a consultation with the team. Mm-hmm. But I don't do that on a regular basis. Um, uh, my colleagues in the U.S. are routinely involved, most of them, in that that kind of activity.
0: Do you ever travel and help? Do you ever get called uh, No, I,
1: I just visit. They don't need my help. They right. do it well enough. But I <laughs> learn from what they're doing and colleagues in, in the Netherlands do this as well. Uh, in Israel, it's not a well-developed, uh, so what I do is mostly academic bioethics. It's mm-hmm. teaching and writing and right. a lot of involvement in uh, policy in uh, various uh, commissions or committees on the national level. Uh, we have a National Bioethics Council, mm-hmm. of which I'm a member, and actually the talk I'm giving on Monday here yep. in the Bioethics Center mm-hmm. uh, will reflect my experiences uh, in the, as a member of Israel's National Con- uh, Bioethics Council Uh, specifically about forced medical feeding. So the title of my talk on Monday at the Bioethics Center here is uh, Debating Forced Medical Feeding, Israeli Responses to Hunger Strikers. Okay, so
0: you're literally meaning when someone is on strike... Feeding them by force, or do you also mean where someone is perhaps unconscious in an end-of-life conversation?
1: No, this is specifically about hunger strike. Okay, so it's people who are on hunger strike, right? And at some point, they're in danger of severe neurological damage or yep. worse. Yeah, and uh, then the question is: Is it
0: ethical to force ethical feed them? Ethical
1: to force feed them in order to save their life, and also perhaps to frustrate whatever it is. For, for which they're making, the, they've gone on hunger strike, and the Israeli National Bioethics Council had a debate, a discussion about that, and yeah. put out a position paper.
0: What was the position?
1: Well, actually, the the, the unanimous position of the Bioethics mm-hmm. Council was that uh, forced feeding is unethical. Really. Um, in general. Yeah. Uh, there's a caveat to that. Okay. But unfortunately, we were unheeded by the Israeli Parliament, which eventually went ahead and uh, uh, made a change to the law, Mm -hmm. which we had advocated against.
0: So the government didn't agree with you?
1: Right. We have broad authority as the National Bioethics Council to give advice to all parts of the Israeli government, the parliament, the government, the, the courts but then they don't have to heed
0: our advice. So it's a nutshell that you're saying the bioethics committee said it's unethical to force, let's just portray there is someone who believes they are in prison for a crime they didn't commit, they go on a hunger strike. Your position, the council's position was it's unethical to force feed them, but the government went and made legislation to say you can force feed them.
1: Well, uh, I should be more precise about that. Okay, Israeli patients' rights law has an, Strange uh, or at least unusual uh, um, clause which talks about forced medical treatment. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, in some countries, if a person says, if a person who is competent refuses medical treatment, even if they will die without that treatment, that's the end of the story. You can't do that. Right. And equally, if they insist that some medical treatment which has already been put in place, be removed, like a ventilator, they're conscious, competent, then they have to be obeyed. I and mean, you could call in a psychiatrist to try to determine whether the person is uh,
0: competent. Yeah. But
1: once that, uh, that has been exhausted and the psychiatrist says, of course, this person is competent. So even if you think the decision is foolish and you don't agree with it, and there's nothing you can do about it mm-hmm. legally, and you must abide by that person's choice. I imagine the situation is the same in New Zealand, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps Jason can try to figure that out for us. But well, we talked. About, uh, we
2: just talked. We had an episode. Where we talked about palliative care a while back, didn't we, Pat? And I'm pretty sure that is the case. That mm. if you are of sound mind, you can say no, I don't want medicine. No, I don't want food, and then mm. just choose to go quietly off into the night.
0: I think I don't think it's uncommon for people to. I was talking to someone the other day whose father got diagnosed with. Um, prostate cancer when he was about 78, and he said, not taking any drugs, I'm not doing any, he passed away when he was 84, y- you know, a good innings anyway. So I don't, I mean, it seems to me that I can't imagine a country forcing medical intervention on someone, but that's a bit different from a hunger striker.
1: Well, the curious thing is that what you can't imagine actually is the case, at least on paper in Israel. Of course, okay. even though we have a patient's rights law, which requires consent and- mm-hmm generally says you cannot force medical treatment on anyone without their informed consent. In a case of uh, a life-threatening situation where a competent person is refusing treatment, there is a mechanism by which an ethics committee can authorize forced treatment.
0: Wow. Is that a very common occurrence that that happens?
1: It's, it's, it's rather rare. There have been a few such cases, but it's a, it's quite rare. And, uh, one of the conditions, uh, w- one of several conditions which has to be met for the ethics committee to be allowed to authorize that, is that it has expectation of retroactive consent.
0: Expectation of retroactive consent. Okay. Now, whether
1: retroactive consent has is a valid. Concept. It really means anything. What does that mean? At the time I was saying, no, 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 don't do this. And you had to hold me down and sedate me and amputate my leg, let's say, to save my life. And then afterwards I say, oh, I'm happy you did that. Well, that's easy to understand. That might happen. But what does it mean that I now retroactively consent to what was done against my will? I,
0: I guess what you have to think is... Let's say the person's 35 and they've got cancer. When they were 25, they might have said, if I ever get cancer, I want total treatment. Retroactively, they've said it, even if at the moment they say no, but how would you ever know that?
1: Well, this is a case where you, I, 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 I'm not sure I followed the scenario you described. Anyway, you, I, I won't interrupt your train of thought. You keep going. No. Well, so. What I'm saying is that in theory and rarely even in practice, Israeli law permits coerced medical treatment to save someone's life.
0: So even if they don't want it? Right. What happens, and I guess it might be difficult to get quite specific because it seems like more of a broader understanding, but if someone has, is suffering some kind of debilitating disease which was going to lead to death, like, like, like if, if a doctor said you've got a 20% chance of survival and the person went, oh, I'm not interested in taking that, I'd rather just be off drugs and die, Like, with a small chance of survival, could it still be enforced? Or does it need to be something that is basically, this will guarantee to save this person's life?
1: Well, actually, that's another one of the conditions. It has to promise a significant improvement in your conditions. So it's not like... Keeping you alive for another two weeks or something like that,
0: or if someone's got cancer, for example, and the doctor say the surgery will give you a ten percent chance, that wouldn't apply. I don't think so. Whereas if someone had gangrene in their foot exactly. and taking them from the knee down would get rid of it all, that would apply. Exactly. Gotcha. Exactly.
1: So the background wow. of the background of the debate about hunger strikers includes this uh, special Israeli legal situation. Yeah. So a a in theory a hunger striker at some stage we would assume would be moved to a hospital and then their life could be in danger. And you could imagine someone approaching the ethics committee and looking for permission on these same grounds. Yeah. And I cannot rule out that that would be authorized. So the debate about hunger strikers was not about that. We weren't about to change that clause in the law.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But the question is whether anything... In addition, should be any special provision should be made for breaking hunger strikes beyond okay. the mechanism that was already there.
0: It's just the logistics of that. How, would you do, how do you force feed someone? Would you have to put them sedate them and put a tube in them or something like that? Well, I mean, You can't force someone to eat a sandwich. Here's a sandwich. Eat it a roll. You know?
1: Well, you can actually see it's... Uh, well, there, that's an interesting question. And uh, the mechanics of it can differ. Right. Um, actually, uh, the early cases of hunger strikes were with the uh, Irish prisoners in uh, the twenty, I think, in the teens of the previous century, mm-hmm. leading up to Irish independence. Right. And also, uh, almost at the same time, the suffragettes. Right. Who went on hunger strike? Now they weren't hunger striking. Until women were given the vote. It was more about the conditions of their imprisonment. Okay. Which is the same about the Irish uh, uh, IRA people. Mm-hmm. And it's actually the same about the Palestinian hunger strikers in Israeli prisons. So it's not there saying, I'm going on hunger strikes until you free Palestine. Mm-hmm. It's more about the actual conditions of imprisonment or... uh so, 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 Some complaint
0: they have as prisoners. So you're saying a, a Palestinian is not saying, I'm going to kill myself until Palestine is free. I'll, saying,
1: I'll, I'll, I'll fast.
0: I'll fast. They're saying, my conditions that I'm in are so terrible, I want them better, and that's what I'm striking for. It's a, something about themselves, right? Right. something bigger.
1: Right. Or I'm being detained in a way which is unacceptable. Well, we have administrative detention. Right. So that's, you know, they go, put me on trial or release me. And, and just don't keep me here indefinitely, so I'm right. going to strike about that.
0: Right, right.
1: So... Now, if you look at movies about the suffragettes, and you can actually see force feeding, Mm -hmm. they're actually holding the person down. They don't have to sedate them. And uh, with sufficient force, they can force them to open their mouth and pour something into it. And then they have to swallow. And that's uh, physically and emotionally pretty brutal. Yeah, I reckon. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, you could think of a person who's on hunger strike and is getting hydration through an intravenous, yeah. right? Because nobody can be for 50 days on a hunger strike without any fluid.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So they, but they're getting just pure water. They don't want even glucose in there because they don't want the nutrition. Mm-hmm. So you could just, once that's in place, and the person is pretty weak, maybe not in a position to pull out the IV, and you could just add nourishment into that. So physically, it's very far from the brutality of forced feeding yeah, in the classical yeah. sense. In terms of going against the person's wishes, invading their body and putting something in their body which they didn't want, you you might still call it forced feeding.
0: Yeah, wow. You brought up uh, Palestine, Palestinians as well. Jace, can you bring up that map map? Um, I, I'm ignorant, right? Let me make that very clear, and I'm okay to be considered as ignorant. Uh, we've got a, a, a map here of your university, about University. Right. You're approximately 50 kilometres from uh, the Gaza border. Right. And about, is it 15, Jase? About 15 kilometres from the West Bank. Correct. Um, we, uh, and then, Brian, we just did a little comparison on Dunedin because, you know, 50 kilometres takes us up to Shag Point and 10 kilometres takes us across to um, Moskiel, doesn't it, Jace? So that gives me a perspective of how close those areas are. And, of course, when we hear those areas a lot, it's in reference to conflict and to very big geopolitical issues. Uh, Another one of your areas of interest or speciality is the morality of war. And when I saw that, I just thought, gosh, that must be a really interesting conversation within Israel as to what's going on on all of your borders at the moment as well. So you brought up Palestinians in detention and stuff. How does your... um, I guess, academic side and your interests relate to the conflict in your own, I mean, I I first look at that and I've never been to Israel. I've had people who have gone that I know to the West Bank and visited and done that kind of stuff. But from a very green, uh, very naive person to um, being in a place like that, although I do follow the geopolitical world quite a lot, I'm fascinated to get your take on sort of life in Israel how that relates to the conflict on your borders and how that relates to your academic specialty as
1: well well i teach a course on uh, ethics of warfare uh, uh, i think more or less every other year
2: mm-hmm.
1: and actually it's a very uh, live issue that is it's not even though mostly in the course we'll be talking about examples from other places and other times from world war 2 or mm-hmm. from ancient wars, medieval wars, uh, or uh, the war in Vietnam. But everybody realizes that this has direct impact on what we're living through. Yeah, of course. Um, And the, well, one issue which comes up is, of course, the issue of the occupation. Mm -hmm. That is, Israel is acting as a, occupying uh, force over, not no longer over Gaza, but Mm -hmm. over the uh, West Bank. And uh, how does that relate to the ethics of warfare? And uh, the book that I use as a textbook for this course is written by Michael Walter. It's the classical book on these issues, Just and Unjust Wars, which was published in 1977. And as uh, the author, Walter writes in his uh, preface, it grew out of the protests against Vietnam. Right. And uh, in that book, he discusses the question of one country conquering some area from another and asks about, you know, would it be right for the other country to engage in war in order to liberate the territory? And he also asks further about what if, the people in that territory eventually come to like the new country.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, something happens over several generations mm-hmm. and they connect better and they say, we don't want to be liberated. But in terms of the legal rights of the country from whom this land was taken, mm-hmm. that seems they seem, would seem to still have the claim to that territory. And that's where Walter formulates a very important principle, which is the land follows the people. Right, that's his phrase. The land follows the people. Right, that is. This is not primarily about a, le- a legal paradigm. Mm-hmm. You know, who owns the land, like some old-time sovereign. Yeah, but it's really about the right of a political community to self-determination. Yep, that's what. Uh, so that's what makes conquest wrong, and that's what gives. Uh, the people living in such an area the right to be free of the rule of a country who is ruling over them against their will. Right. And if that changes and they no longer, are no longer complaining about that and they're happy about that, mm. then the same right of self-determination should, uh, uh, should make it okay.
0: So what we hear in the news is, and I guess we're talking pre- um, I forget the name of the UN before it was the UN, the League of whatever it was. League of Nations. League of Nations, who, again, look, I'm happy to um, state my ignorance of the finer details, but the League of Nations who then, um, after the war, settled a lot of the uh, Jewish people in the Israeli area. um, When Israel was, was birthed, as it is in its modern state, the people who were there... It seems that if what you're saying is if those people who were there when Israel was formed are happy today about that, then there's no conflict. But if they're unhappy about it, then there's still an issue to do with being ruled over by by these people. So, again, I, you know, I'm I'm not doing this well. But the Israelis the Israelis who are now there are they seen by the people who were living there before Israel came back to their homeland? as, you know, good people, good neighbours, this is not a problem? Because what we see in the news is there's constant
1: conflict. Well, I think, if I heard you correctly, you seem to be conflating two phases of the issue. Okay. Because Israel uh, gained its independence in 1948, and that was on the basis of the United Nations partition decision Mm -hmm. that said, okay, there's a conflict about this land and let's just partition it and have part of it as a Jewish state and part of it as an Arab state, which would have been Palestine. Right. And that didn't work out, mainly because it was rejected by the Arab side. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was formally accepted by the Jewish side. But uh, eventually, the state of Israel, uh, after the War of Independence in 1949, uh, um, had certain definite borders. And what we're talking now about, the West Bank is beyond that. That's territories which were conquered in 1967.
0: Weren't there something in the 1960s borders or boundaries that were defined?
1: Well, the 1949 borders and the 1967 borders are the same, because that prevailed for those close to 20 years. And aren't the
0: borders now very different, or the occupying area from Israel they've moved into beyond those borders? Like, Jason, if you bring up the Israel 1960s borders versus today— I, again, again, I plead ignorance here, um, and have a look at the imagery of what that what that right. does. So, so you right. keep going. But, but, well, the
1: borders you were you were showing me before were the board, are the borders of, of Israel proper. That is until nineteen sixty seven. So
0: this here show us the, the that one there. Can you make that full screen, Jase? So explain this to us. Bigger, 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 bigger.
1: Oops. Okay. So
0: there is nineteen forty six on the left. And then 47, and then 49, and now
1: 2,000. Okay, so if you look at the second slide from the right. Uh, Yep. That's the state of, the white area is the state of Israel as borders internationally recognized by the UN and by virtually uh, most of the countries in the world. Yep. And uh, there's those called the ceasefire borders, which are based on ceasefires between Israel and Egypt and Lebanon and Jordan and Syria. Yep which are all the surrounding areas. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the two green areas are uh, the occupied territories. The small green area on the left is the Gaza Strip. Yep, got that. And that was um, administered by Egypt from 1949 until 1967.
0: And they're on their southernmost border there, right? Eh?
1: It's on the left side, yeah, ne- yeah. near the sea. And the larger green area on the right on the east, is called the West Bank, because yep. that's the part of the, it was administered by the Kingdom of Jordan, mm-hmm. and a lot of the people living there are still Jordanian citizens. Mm-hmm. And it was the West Bank of the Jordan River. The East Bank of the Jordan River is to the right of that.
0: So in the, the 1960s, which is the third image from the left or second from the right, and then today, I guess, it shows that Israeli land is a lot bigger than it was then is that what i'm saying i see it's 2000 but i'm assuming that's similar to what it
1: well, is now actually i have mixed feelings about that slide on the right hand yeah. because if it was shown in israel i would be very angry about it okay. because i would say nobody recognized that and including the israeli government thinks that that area has been annexed to israel right so it's occupied territory it's not uh, under israeli sovereignty uh, the people who live there, for the most part, don't vote, have no vote. So they're just uh, civilians in occupied territory. So erasing the line and making the white area expand yep. is something which the people on the Israeli right or the extreme right would like to happen. Right. But fortunately, from my point of view, has not yet happened. I right. hope it never does happen.
0: So, we, now, so It does
1: mean, I think, with people who, who put out that illustration, wanted to show the places that Israeli now has Security control
0: over. Oh, so control over, but not necessarily, uh, quote, unquote, ownership. Exactly. Right. So, all right, that's really interesting. So, I mean, I mean, it's interesting you would even say that if this was shown in Israel, you know, there might be some issues because that probably speaks to what we get in the media about the conflict that's there. I'm interested about the morality, the morality of war of, of within the confines of Israel and how that works and how you see that working. Because I think about it, and this is, again, my ignorance, about Israel as being uh, a fairly dangerous place. I think about you know what I see in the news about Hamas firing missiles and Israeli soldiers firing back, and uh, those are the headlines. I have to be honest, not so much of recent times, actually, if I'm being honest. Maybe that's because Trump takes up all the news cycles. Um, but that's the... <coughs> That's the gist of, of, you know, let's say the last 20 years, what we have been hearing. Um,
1: Well, let me say two things here. First of all, uh, imagining Israel as a dangerous place is an interesting notion. I should say my daughter volunteered in Uganda. Yeah. And uh, my wife lost a lot of sleep while she was there because she felt that she was in a dangerous place. Yeah. And she was talking with a local... Friend who was a medical student there and Christian and she said to her, you know, Laura, why don't you come visit me in Israel someday? And Laura said, Oh, Israel, that's dangerous.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so well, I did. I did say I was ignorant, so, so but I get your point very clearly.
1: <laughs> so the you know we're, so we're going to New Zealand and people say you're crazy. You'll be struck by an earthquake. Yeah. Yeah. So which the risk for earthquakes in Israel are not non-existent. Yeah. We're, we're in. We're due for one. But, yeah. But statistically, but. Nothing like the statistics here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, uh, you know, every place is either uh, dangerous or not dangerous. There's a
0: Especially to outsiders. Right. I don't, it's, not, it's not my daily life. You probably get your coffee on the way as you walk to the university and everything seems blissful.
1: Exactly. Yeah. But I, the, the other point is this really, that uh, in terms of, of making sense of the conflict, mm. as you can see, this is a very narrow space altogether. Yeah. So we have about 8 million Israeli citizens including uh, uh, um, uh, sixth of that, who are Arabs, yep. and they're Israeli citizens. Yep. And most of them seem quite content to be Israeli citizens, though they would like greater recognition for them as an ethnic minority and greater equality and other things, which are, they perhaps rightly uh, uh, seek. But it's not that they don't want to be Israeli citizens. They want to change the Israeli polity so they'll have more uh, more standing within it.
0: So life for them on a day-to-day basis is perfectly good. They're perfectly happy.
1: They don't feel like an oppressed people in general? Well, I don't think all of them say, will give you the same answer. Right, but, but in, in general? In general, I think they'd say, what I think they'd say is, "It's it, we're, we're pleased to be Israeli citizens, hmm. but there should be things changed in, in the Israeli polity, right. so our standing is is better, is fairer, both as individuals and as an ethnic minority and actually the native people who are here earlier. But distinct from that are the people living in the occupied territories, the West Bank, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, who have no political rights and are really ruled over by the Israeli military uh, um, power. Mm-hmm. And this clearly goes against what I quoted from Walter before. You know, right. The land follows the people, or the right of a people of political sovereignty. And the interesting thing is that I'm pretty sure most Israelis agree with that. So
0: why doesn't Israel get out of the West Bank?
1: Okay. Most Israelis agree with that. They say, yes, in principle, of course, the Palestinians have a right to self-determination, mm-hmm. and there's something deeply wrong about us ruling over them. Yeah. But those who oppose moving out of the West Bank, many of them would say— this is the lesser evil. Staying there is the lesser evil mm. because of the terrorism and the proven record of the Palestinians. Well, you can't say the Palestinians, but significant portions of the Palestinian uh, explicitly seeking not only to be free of Israeli military occupation, but to have the state of Israel removed.
0: Mm. Pushed into the state, aren't they? So right, things right. like that. Yeah.
1: Now, th- that's the official position of Hamas to this day. The right. Palestinian Authority has, in the Oslo Accords, recognized the right of Israel to exist. Mm-hmm. So the two-state solution is accepted by them. But a lot of Israelis mistrust that. So it's really Israelis who are who want to con- who choose or support continuing the occupation are, for the most part, looking at that not as an ideal situation. Mm-hmm. And they're not denying the evil of that. But they're thinking that moving out would be the greater evil because we can't let these people just... Be without our control near our borders because it's so close and they're so dangerous and so committed to destroying us. So
0: that comes back to the question of
1: self-determination.
0: People in the West Bank um, wanting self-determination. I guess then the, the ethical question maybe would be, and perhaps I'm, I'm the wrong person to use that phrase because you are the ethicist, is even if they're, <laughs> I say, even if they're complete dicks and want to commit harm to Israel does that therefore mean it's ethical to stay there and basically keep them imprisoned or certainly keep them ruled over as a, what some would say, invading
1: force? Well, you know, some Israelis are perhaps even just uh, racists or chauvinists and they don't care about that. But I think there's a fair size of people who support the occupation. I'm not one of them. Mm but say this is just the lesser of two evils. Right. That is, yes, we, it's wrong of us to just hold them as kind of prisoners, mm. so, but we have no choice because we tried, uh, well, we moved out of Gaza, yeah. and then Hamas took control, and they're shooting rockets at us, mm. at our terrorist rockets, and had mm. at, at kindergartens and s- civilian targets. So we just can't afford to abolish our control And we realize that it's a bad thing, and we just have to continue this bad thing indefinitely until something better turns up.
0: So, I I think that's wrong headed. Yeah. So, you're saying you're someone who doesn't want to stay in occupied West Bank. So, what, from your perspective, what would the solution be? Because if you can't, if what you're saying is it seems you can't just move out and just go, okay, it's yours now, what is the solution to? giving self-determination to those in the West Bank.
1: Well, I should say I'm no political military expert, so sure. I'm talking about the ethics of this. Yep. To my mind, it makes no sense to say, we'll just continue something which is immoral indefinitely because we can't see a way out. And it's unsustainable, you have to isn't look it? For, well, I think it's unsustainable. Yeah. Some people say, well, that's the best we can do, and let's hope it is sustainable. Yeah. But uh, in the long run, I would say that means you have to be committed to looking for some alternative, and that's what the Oslo Accord was about. hmm was trying to build up the Palestinian authorities so they can um, be a uh, partner with Israel in maintaining mutual security. Mm-hmm. And uh, I still think that can work, but uh, there has to be... Look, I'll just say this, making a more general point, okay. which I think is an ethical point. There have been... I haven't seen this in... the recent year or two, but for many years, it may be still the case, but for many years, if you did surveys on both sides, you found two-thirds support for the two-state solution on both sides. Right. Among, there's a, a clear majority of Israelis, a clear majority of Palestinians were for the two-state solution. They can say, well, why isn't it happening? Yeah. Well, the cynical answer is we have leaders on both sides who have gained power from the conflict. So they're not letting it happen despite the will of the people. That's the cynical answer. And there may be some truth in that. But mm. I think the deeper and more humanly important answer is there's too much fear. From both sides. That is, it's easy for people to say, um, well, it's easier for people to say, yes, I think we should have a two-state solution. But yeah. then they'll go on to say, in order to make that happen, I need to be able to trust the other people and I'm afraid. And each side has legitimate grounds to be afraid of the other side Mm -hmm. and how do you help people work their way out of that box Mm -hmm. from being afraid into where they want to move and in the direction which they believe is the right direction. That's a difficult challenge. We had the same problem in Northern Ireland. Yeah,
0: well, that's my background, My, my I'm, I'm Irish Catholic. I literally have second cousins who were in the IRA. So I can, when you talk about these things, I'm kind of thinking, yeah, well that wasn't a solution for Northern Ireland and now with the whole Brexit thing happening, that's given them another whole headache about what Northern Ireland is compared to you know, the rest of Ireland and so I, I can't say I understand I am a- ignorant and naive to it, but I've grown up with an Irish mum who, you know, we had IRA, pa- IRA papers in our house, like newspapers. So so it feels that there is a similarity, at least, there to maybe not understand, but certainly empathise on some level the situation.
1: Well, yes. Now, you can say in Ireland that went on for 800 years mm. and was resolved in 21, I think. Mm. So uh, we still have hope. Yeah. but. I should say that if you looked at what was happening in Belfast, you could at some point have felt the same way as I described. You know, people don't want to be fighting their relatives, but they don't don't see a way out of the fear. And it actually took external powers, the European Union and the British government and the United States to bring forth the Good Friday Accord.
0: Well, how does that work? Uh, And I know we're we're, we're going over now, but but I guess, I was going to ask you one more question, but I might... Might end up being a long answer. America seems to have an affinity with Israel, especially in the political, geopolitical sense. If you're a Republican, if you don't show love for America, uh, sorry for Israel, then there's no way you can be a Republican. Basically, um, I've always been interested and a little bit confused with the closeness of that relationship. Um, but if the that, if that's one of the external. Uh, governments being involved in helping this area, it seems that they are so pro-Israel, and I don't use that term negatively, just as a perhaps literal observation, how will they ever help Israel? Because obviously in a a negotiation, there's give and take. seems from what comes out of America, there'd be no give to Palestine at all. So how using external um, help or forces, if they're involved, would that actually help the situation?
1: Well, I should say that one... Could hope that the current American administration is not forever. Yeah, and this is well—that's been going on for a
0: very long time in America, though. If it's if it's a Republican Party, it seems to be, you know, be all and end all, Israel above all else in that region.
1: Well, I I don't want to comment on American politics, but sure. I should say that certainly, uh, well, part of the situation part of the situation seems to be that. Americans and people in other democratic countries uh, and in the West uh, have uh, great suspicion and fear of Islamic jihadic forces. Mm -hmm. So insofar as the Palestinians are seen as part and parcel of those forces, it's hard to expect uh, Western countries or the United States in particular to be neutral about that. Yeah. So the challenge for the Palestinians is to disentangle or disengage themselves from the jihadist Islamic stance. And actually, I don't think that most of, I'm pretty sure that most of the Palestinians in the West Bank do not identify yeah, with for the sure. jihadist Islamic positions. Most of them, though mm. there is a minority who do. Yeah. So the challenge for their leadership and for them as a society is to clearly distinguish themselves From those forces and in the hope that the West will realize that and not confound its battle against jihadic militarist Islamic terrorist Islamic movements with the stance they should take towards the Palestinian people and in terms of Israel and the Palestinians the, the optimistic side in me says we'll find a way of working this out do you think peace is possible do you think peace is possible? Oh, it's certainly possible. We need just Likely? To, well, in the long run, I'd say it's likely. Mm-hmm. And as a religious person, uh, uh, believing in the vision of Isaiah, uh, chapter 2, the ploughshare swords into plowshares, uh, I would hope that that happens. But the likelihood of, the, of that depends upon us. We have elections in Israel soon. Maybe mm-hmm. there will be a change for the better in that regard. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, we, I think, also need help from outside to, uh, to force both sides beyond their fears.
0: Look, that feels like a great place to um, finish the conversation today. Um, Professor Zaha, oh, thank you so much for coming in today. This has been amazing. I've enjoyed it greatly. Um, if people want to find out about – one of your lectures is up on the Otago University events uh, page – But the one for Monday, I don't think is. Um, I'm sure the theological um, uh, group over there uh, will get that up there. But at the moment, if people go to the um, Otago University events page, they can see your Wednesday lecture. And I'm sure a quick Google search will help find information for your Monday lecture as well.
1: Yes, I think they should look for the Bioethics Centre.
0: Bioethics Centre to find out more information. Right, that's it, Monday at 1 o'clock. And you're here for several months, so... Enjoy your time in New Zealand. We greatly appreciate you coming in.
1: Um, Thank you. Thank you for this conversation. It's it's been been very interesting. Thank you very much.
0: Well, That was fascinating, especially that last half hour. I really enjoyed the talk of Israel and what's going on over there. So thank you to Dr. Zohar for joining us again today. Um, University of Otago, go to their events page if you get this in time to see when his public lectures are. So next week, uh, speaking of the university, another visiting lecturer, Mark Kelly from Western Sydney University is going to join us. Uh, Mark Kelly is delivering a lecture about the politics of language today, the politics of language today. And um, he, uh, I guess he does this thing where he understands how words and phrases have a fixed political meaning. And I'm I'm looking forward to discussing this with Mark, but it seems that maybe what he's talking about is dog whistles, that sort of thing. So you may say something that on the surface level means X, but it has an underlying meaning to it. And one of the interesting things for me, being the political tragic that I am, is one of his areas of focus and areas to explain this whole phenomenon is the Trump candidacy. He looks at the left and the right. And uh, yeah, I guess we're going to get to talk about the politics of language today. Um, And that's next week, uh, I think 11 o'clock Thursday. uh, But you'll check out the uh, Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash DEPT of conversation. Uh, Subscribe on Facebook. Subscribe on YouTube, just just search for us there. Also on iTunes for the audio podcast, which you're listening to right now, and you'll be updated when the next episode drops. Thank you for joining us again for this episode. It was a blast. I really enjoyed it and looking forward to next week. Hooroo! <laughs>